to be free from carnal thoughts, carnal desires, and those things that war against your spiritual life. Abstain from them. That's the Bible's teaching. And so it is not accurate to say that once you're a Christian, you can do what you please according to your carnal desires. Rather, the spiritual-minded person, what he or she pleases, will be to please the Lord and to walk in the Spirit and not according to the flesh. Welcome to Let the Bible Speak. This is Pastor Ian Golliher, and I do thank you for joining with us in the program today. We're continuing with our message on the behavior of a Christian, 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. We hope that you'll have your Bible ready in just a moment. We'll also have the hymn, Amazing Grace, because our question answered today on why become a Christian is because grace is amazing. Such is the wonder of this word that all the dictionaries in the world can't seem to define it fully. God's grace is as big as God himself, for out of his heart comes grace towards sinners. The mysterious part of God's grace is that it is granted to the most undeserving. That is essential to our understanding of grace, and it is staggering to our puny carnal minds. To be given salvation through our wages would not be grace. To pay even one penny for salvation would not be grace. It would be payment. Grace has to be free, both in the recipient, who is totally undeserving, and in the heart of the giver. That leads us to an attempt to define grace. It is God's undeserving favor to guilty man. But more than this, it is given to rebellious man. That is proven at the cross of Calvary, where man is the spiteful hater of God and his Son. There men cried out, Crucify him! And they saw to it that it was carried out. It was man's madness against God, and all sin is madness. It is biting the hand that feeds us. It is spitting in the face of our very Creator, who gives the life and breath in our bodies." God's grace is extended to such rebels that they have sinned away every dignity and every reason why they should be saved. When God saves men by grace, he does so freely, meaning that he does so without a cause. There is no reason in man for God to lift a finger to save his soul. Yet God, in his infinite grace, staggers the world with a full treatment of man's sin, through the death of his Son. Yes, God so loved us that he gave his only begotten Son. This is not cheap love, and grace is not cheap either. It cost God more than the world, more than the universe to redeem my soul. It cost God the gift that staggers our minds, his own Son. Why did God love us so much? How? Could he love us so much? Nevertheless, the fact of God's love is there. It is true, and it's amazing. No wonder John Newton called it amazing grace. Others have called it wondrous grace. I love the words of Samuel Davies' hymn, Great God of wonders, all thy ways are matchless godlike, 
and divine, but the bright glories of thy grace above thine other wonders shine, above thine other wonders shine. And then the refrain goes, Who is a pardoning God like thee? Or who has grace so rich and free? Or who has grace so rich and free? Why be a Christian? Because God's grace is amazing. And you can say that over and over again, and it grows more true by the telling. Come then to the Savior. Be saved today and receive his amazing grace. Now we'll have the hymn, Amazing Grace. coming now to the message today to 1 Peter chapter 2 verses 10 and 11 the behavior of a Christian it does damage to the heart the mind the prayer life the ability to walk with God what would it do abstain and Peter says the same thing that we are to abstain from fleshly lusts now, we could go down the line tonight and talk about pornography, explicit scenes in media entertainment, ungodly, rebellious music that really pump the flesh, unclean conversations and talk, and in the workplace, that's an issue. Alcohol, what it does to lead people to perverse talk, you ever notice people under the influence of alcohol, it immediately just frees up their whole attitude of what they talk about. It leads to fleshly lusts. Gambling harms the soul. 
can become an addiction. There's a big debate on now about this new casino in Vancouver. I noticed that every medical officer in BC has put in their verdict and report that they are against this casino due to the damage of addiction that it causes. It harms people. And the difficulty of this subject tonight is we are living in an age of what people call Christian liberty. When they say, well, look, I have, as a Christian, I'm free to do as I please. And you are a legalist if you apply any standard in any one thing. Well, tonight you notice here that it's biblical to guard your soul. And whatever it takes to put down the flesh, to get the victory over the flesh, to be free from carnal thoughts, carnal desires, and those things that war against your spiritual life, abstain from them. That's the Bible's teaching. And so it is not accurate to say that once you're a Christian, you can do what you please according to your carnal desires. Rather, the spiritual-minded person, what he or she pleases, will be to please the Lord and to walk in the Spirit and not according to the flesh. Let me give you a quote of J.C. Ryle on this subject. He wrote uh, a number of articles on this topic. He wrote a book to young men which uh, is very wise, very practical. I just want to read this one quote to you. Men never know what they do when they once venture off safe ground. Late hours, crowded rooms, splendid entertainments and mixed company and music and dancing may seem harmless to many people, but the Christian should never forget that to take part in these things is to open a wider door to temptation. I could talk tonight about what is done in the name of Christianity. We have now Christian nightclubs, Christian dances, Christian drinking, Christian liberty in drinking. It is so far removed from the reality of the spiritual battle that is going on in souls. And you can be sure that where people let down their guard and fall for these things, they lose out, and their lives so often tell the story. I want to give you the advice of Susanna Wesley that she gave to her two sons— I think actually it was John. She, was, she had two sons, John and Charles Wesley. But I think it was John that she gave this advice to. She said, Whatever weakens your reason, impairs the tenderness of your conscience, obscures your sense of God, or takes off the relish of spiritual things, in short, whatever increases the strength and authority of your body over your mind, that thing is sin to you, however innocent it may be in itself. And so tonight, how do you live amongst the ungodly? You live as the guardian of your soul. This is your responsibility. 
that you don't walk into temptation, that you don't feed the lusts of your flesh and of your mind, that you don't feed the very things that will destroy you, but you're to war against the lusts of the flesh. Let me ask you, are you warring? Are you getting on your knees and crying to God to deliver you from sin and from the snares of the devil? If not, there's no, where's the spiritual warfare? Are you calling on Christians and saying, look, pray for me. I am living against temptation. I am fearful of falling. That's spiritual warfare. Get to the house of God in the place of prayer and enter in and say, amongst God's people, pray for me. Now, you don't have to divulge every temptation that's going through your mind. But if you're battling against sin, how important it is that you abstain from fleshly lusts and get fighting for the cause of righteousness in your soul. So that's the second thing. Number three, verse 12, live as witnesses among the ungodly. As witnesses among the ungodly. Firstly, bearing their criticisms. Having your conversation honest among the Gentiles, that whereas they speak against you as evildoers. There's their criticisms. And it's hard, I know. You'd rather have somebody hit you in the chin with their fist than to go around criticizing, pulling you down. But Peter says that's the ignorance and the foolishness of men. They don't know what Christianity is. They don't know the, the nature of God and the glory and the goodness of God. There are people who say, I'll never go to that church. I wouldn't enter amongst that bunch of hypocrites. And then if you ask them, well, what's wrong with these people? What have they done? What kind of people are they? They don't know. They're, they're ignorant. Well, I've never been to the church, so I don't know. That's foolishness and ignorance. And very often, that's what you have to bear as a Christian amongst the ungodly. Also, we're called to live honest among the Gentiles, that they by your good works, which they shall behold, glorify your Father in heaven. Here is the foremost tool of evangelism, your good works. It means nothing more than that, good works. Now, if I was preaching to sinners how to be saved, I would be preaching against good works. I'd be telling people, you can't do any good work at all. You can never, ever step up and do anything good in your own strength. But when you talk to a Christian in whom is dwelling the Holy Spirit, they are born again, they're regenerated, they've got the Holy Spirit living in their heart, they're living a life of prayer. Yes, you can live a new life. And by your new life, you become a witness to those who are around you. And the world, they take note. As I said, they don't read their Bible, but they'll read your life. They'll listen to your conversation. They will heed the things that you take interest in and the things that you stay away from. That's how it was in the early church. That's how the church grew. People took note that they had been with Jesus. When Paul and Silas were in the Philippian uh, jailer's jail, 
the earthquake struck. But the jailer came and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And it was through the praises and the witness of Paul and Silas that they were converted. If you remember the testimony of the Reverend Gangar, how when he was in England, going to a state school, and there was a Christian teacher. And it was through his life and witness that he got introduced to Christianity, to the gospel. And it was through that person's life that God brought him to the knowledge of the Lord Jesus. Now, if you go to chapter 3, verse 1, you'll notice this is Peter's advice to wives whose husbands are unconverted. It says, Likewise, ye wives, be in subjection to your own husbands, that if any obey not the word, they also may, without the word, be won by the conversation of the wives. Now, the word conversation there is not the talking of the wives. Now, I know wives love to talk, but Peter is not there talking about the wives' mere talking. He's talking about their lifestyle, submission, godly living before their husbands. And by that way, Peter said, you will best win your husband to the Lord Jesus by living the gospel before them. Now, this morning we were thinking about Japan as we talked about earthquakes. I read a story of missionaries that were incarcerated during the Second World War. I'm not sure what part of the world it was in, but they were under uh, Japanese oppression, and many were being tortured and killed by Japanese uh, soldiers. There was one Japanese soldier in particular who was high-ranking but vicious in his methods of torture and his hatred of Christianity. When General MacArthur arrived and the war was all over in Japan, and they set up war tribunals and war crimes, this Japanese officer was convicted and condemned to death for his torture of prisoners. Many of them were not even military prisoners. They were civilians, missionaries. But before his execution, he gave testimony of his conversion to Christ. And it was through the witness of Christians in the prisons over a lengthy period of time that when this man came to face death, made him to realize there is a God and there is a message of hope. And he came to profess faith in the Lord Jesus. The first and foremost tool of evangelism is the Christian's good works. If you're not living the life as a Christian, don't be giving out gospel tracts and inviting people to this church. Don't be even telling people you're a free Presbyterian if you're living as a hypocrite and enjoying the sin and the lust of the world and telling other people they need to be converted. Because it won't wash. You'll do more harm than good. It's only when you're truly converted and you're living in fellowship and the blessedness of the gospel that you become a tool for evangelism that God can use. And he'll use your life way before your words. And you want people at work and school and wherever you go to be saying, what's different about that person? What is it that makes them tick? And the greatest honor that anyone can 
pay you is to come to you and say, what are you? You're different. That is an open door to share the message of the gospel. And Peter says it here. How do we live before the ungodly? Having your conversation, and the word conversation again is lifestyle, honest among the Gentiles, that whereas they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works, which they shall behold, glorify God. Now there's a final part to this. How do you live before the ungodly? You live waiting for the day of God's saving power. You'll notice that Peter says at the end of the verse 12, in the day of visitation. Now, on first reading, you might think, well, that has to be the day of the Lord's return when he's going to wrap up the world. But if you look at it carefully and think about the term, it really has to do with God visiting in days of gospel grace and power. There were times in the Bible when God visited his people. He visited the Israelites to deliver them out of Egypt. He visited Hannah when she was being provoked by Penina because she had no child. God visited Mary when he announced to her that she would be the bearer of the body of our Lord into the world. God visits his people. He comes in grace to his people. And Peter is saying that in the day of visitation, the day of gospel power, these people who are now criticizing you, they will give God the glory for your consistent, steadfast, godly Christian witness before them. Because on that day of visitation, when their eyes are opened and they are brought to the wonderful truth of God, then they will really appreciate your holy living. They will appreciate your consistent, godly lifestyle. Although right now they might think you're crazy. They might think you're just a spoiled killjoy, one of these Puritans that uh, has a long face and no joy in life. That, that's probably what they think of you as a Christian. That's their skewed idea. But on that day of visitation, they will praise God that you lived before them in a biblical, consistent way. And that brings me to what I've quite often said from this pulpit. The best thing that can ever happen to a person is to a meet and come face to face with a genuine Christian. Because then false professors will be detested. Hypocrites will be exposed as the phonies they are. And in the day of God's visitation, men will look for real Christians. They'll want to be among real Christians. When God's Spirit comes down and say there's revival in this land, they'll be looking for real Christians. Not the entertaining, drinking, guzzling, smoking, dancing, and wicked people who say, I'm a Christian. And they live for the world and like the world. When God visits in power and grace, men and women will look for real Christians. I think of the twelve disciples who for three years they followed the Lord Jesus, and men didn't understand the plan of the gospel. And our Lord Jesus went to the cross and died. And of course, the disciples themselves for a time were giving up until the resurrection. But then at Pentecost, and you see Peter preaching, 3,000 converted. The day of God's visitation, Peter's the man. He's God's man. 
And those who gave up their boats, their nets, their lifestyle, their family, their houses, their lands, whatever they gave up, to be disciples of the Lord Jesus. In the day of Pentecost, God's visited. They were vindicated as disciples of the living Christ to bring glory to the Lord. Now, as I said, some people may call you mad for being a Christian, especially being a holy Christian and a narrow Christian, choosing the narrow way rather than the broad way, choosing the things of spiritual life rather than the carnal and the lust of this world. Many will criticize you for that. But let's realize that we're not up to bat yet. The world's having their day, but the Christian church and the people of God are going to be vindicated in so many ways. One with God is the majority. I like that statement in Malachi, when the Lord makes up his jewels. And that means when he's going to take all his people and he's going to set them before the wicked and make them shine for his glory. I want the Lord to do that in my life. I want to be, in that sense, one of the Lord's jewels. Do you? Or do you want to keep one foot in the world, serve the sinful things, and enjoy the things that worldly men want without the spiritual warfare, without denying yourself and taking up the cross of Christ, the cross of holiness and godliness? He that winneth souls is wise. If you're going to be a soul winner, you need the life that goes along with it. That's what Peter's telling us. It's God's way. Why don't you read that verse 12 with me again? Having your conversation honest among the Gentiles, that whereas they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works, which they shall behold, glorify God in the day of visitation. Wonderful advice. That's, that's our call tonight. It's a call to arms. It's a call to spiritual battle. It's a call to prayer. It's a call to holiness. It's a call to live against the current of this world. It's a call to be living witnesses for the Lord Jesus. Will you answer that call? Will you tonight dedicate your life, lay yourself as a living sacrifice on the altar that you might be a witness criticized by men, misunderstood, maligned by men, but the jewel that God will use. And one day men will glorify God for your godly living. And may it come soon how we need this visitation, how we need God one day to cause the church to be a scene of revival when we can't get the people into the seats. We have them all around the church building, wanting to hear the gospel. That's the day of God's visitation. We're praying for that. We're longing for that. And we want to live now in the manner that God may entrust us with his power and grace. May it be so. This broadcast comes to you today from the Free Presbyterian Church in Cloverdale, located at 18790 58th Avenue, Surrey, at the corner of 188th Street and 58th Avenue. On our website you can find gospel articles, links to our sermons and our gospel booklet called A New Beginning. There you can find a link to our Sunday services 
that are broadcast online. For all this information, please go to our website at cloverdealfpc.ca. You're warmly invited to attend any of our Sunday services at 10.30am and 6pm to meet with us as we worship God and to hear the preaching of his precious word. We also meet for Bible study and prayer at 7.30pm every Wednesday evening. Our Sunday School for Children and Adult Bible Class meet every Lord's Day from September to June at 9.30am. You can contact us using our office number which is 604-576-1091. Alternatively, you can email me at pastor.cloverdealfpc at gmail.com. Again, for all this information, please go to our website at cloverdealfpc.ca. Our burden is that you will hear and understand the gospel that will lead you to know the Lord Jesus Christ and his great salvation. And this is Pastor Andrew Fitton. Thank you for listening today and be sure to listen Monday to Friday at 5 a.m. and 5 p.m. and on Sundays at 9.30 a.m. on this station for our full or church service as we worship the Lord through the ministry of his word.